0: You're listening to, yeah, that's probably an ad. It's the Adweek podcast, uh, where we talk about marketing, media, technology, pop culture, because in the end, everything is an ad. I'm David Greiner. I'm the creative and innovation editor here at Adweek. Uh, We are all crammed into the podcast studio here at Adweek. Uh, with uh, even a special guest uh, that we'll introduce in a moment. Um, but uh, we've got back Kamiko McCoy, co-host on podcast and social media editor here at Adway. Kamiko, always a pleasure.
1: Absolutely. Always a pleasure.
0: Who did you bring into the podcast studio who is delightfully clacking around on the floor with her li- little tiny legs? Brought
1: my ham of a dog. Her name is Luxie, 16-year-old dachshund, a lab mix. So as best you can, envision that.
0: Nobody tell the dog cops that we, br- that we snuck your dog in. To An the, to oddly the shaped one at that. Yes. So, um, and we've got back Kelsey Sutton, uh, who covers uh, streaming and platforms uh, and technology in general for Adweek. Kelsey, always great to have you.
2: Uh, thank you so much for having me.
0: And we've got back Patrick Coffee, uh, a Editor at Large, I believe, and one of our senior editors who's been covering agencies uh, and brands for a long time, uh, and has some really big. Uh, we're going to be talking about this. Trend now really of the of an increasingly vocal debate around whether agencies should work with clients that their employees have uh, political and social objections to, uh, and we've seen some major agencies go in in pretty different directions on how to handle that in terms of working with uh, organizations like ICE or you know Customs and Border Patrol. We will get into that in a little bit, Patrick. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, David. Uh, and uh, we are sitting in front of several cups of coffee, not just any coffee, nitro cold brew, the hottest cold trend of coffee. And we all kind of realize that even though we're all aware of it, uh, because it's like impossible to not be aware of nitro cold brew, but we don't haven't had it. Like none of us here, right? No, nobody, no nobody idea. at this table is at it. What
3: is it exactly?
0: So if you are a nitro cold brew aficionado, uh, apologies. Listening to us cavemen have to figure this out. But the reason, <laughs> the reason that we are all uh, sampling this is because uh, this past week, Starbucks, I think acknowledging that, that a lot of people may know what nitro is, may be familiar with it, but don't really know exactly what it is. And it also continues what was already a somewhat confusing distinction between uh, iced coffee, right, which has been around forever, uh, cold brew coffee, and now nitro cold brew. Uh, and so Starbucks did this campaign. It's got a few different pieces, some really kind of swank, cool, Starbucks-y, smooth animation type stuff uh, explaining the – you know, their whole thing is that it's, uh, it's like creamy without cream and it's uh, – what's the other one? That's uh, sweet without sweetener and then that's how they're pushing it. But they also did a oh, – like a seven or nine part video series with Bill Nye, the science guy, stepping in to talk about, um, you know, wh- why nitro, what does it mean, what is nitro? Uh, And so we wanted to—the campaign seems to be doing really well for Starbucks. It got a lot of engagement with our readers, and we wrote about this past week. So uh, let's listen to a little bit before we dive into our own taste test of what we think of it. Let's listen to Bill Nye describing his new, branded, well-paid obsession with nitro cold brew. Whoa. So how in the world does nitrogen get into that delicious cold brew? Well, Starbucks uses a tap system that squeezes— Gaseous nitrogen into liquid coffee with precisely sized tiny holes to create thousands and thousands of micro bubbles on the other side of the tap. It's those micro bubbles that help make nitro, nitro. It's not carbonation. It's nitrogenation. <laughs> Whoa. So that is the science. But first, before we try it, what did you guys think of this campaign?
2: I loved it. I, um, it really put me back to my seventh grade. Uh, middle school science classroom where we watched a lot of bill nye i don't know what that tells you about my public school education but um but it was it i i also think that um the fact that there is kind of a a cool sciencey element to nitro like makes it more interesting than just it's coffee which ultimately at the end of the day like it is it's just a drink but the the fact that we actually kind of can understand the science behind it and obviously taking the most famous science guy of, you know, that anybody has ever known um, to, to do that, to to actually explain the science behind it is, um, is fun. They, yeah.
0: they, it, it would be funny if they had tried to get Neil deGrasse Tyson in and he was just like – just kept correct, <laughs> correcting them until they were like, never mind. We'll just get Bill Nye. <laughs> Mm. Kamika, what do you think
1: I think it's really really dope that they um, so a lot of times you'll see campaigns they'll bring in like big name celebrities and whatnot. sometimes they make sense sometimes they don't um, but I think um, this was a really good opportunity to bring in somebody like Bill Nye um, for that 90s nostalgia and the fact that he I mean I mean he's like an actual scientist but like held on to that brand of like since the 90s and brought it until now and like Starbucks was able to play that up I think it was really really cool well done also, I mean, like Bill Nye could like post a picture of his big toe, like, and I'd be like, "Yes, absolutely, I love it." <laughs> but,
0: what, but this was a really cool one. What's funny is he. This is not the first ad campaign to use Bill Nye. There have been quite a few. Typically, they're they're fake science. Mm-hmm. It's like they're bringing him in as like, oh, it's a scientific breakthrough about this, whatever, and it's just using his shtick to kind of sell something that's not an actual. There is no real science there. And what was nice about this, and the reason they could pull off a mm-hmm. seven to nine whatever part video series. Is because there's a lot to talk about, like with the difference between nitrogen and carbon, you know, carbonation versus nitrogenation, and how it makes for smaller bubbles. And I don't know how much of that, like normally you would say that's probably mostly marketing bullshit, right? Like I'm whatever. And the 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 more stylish ads, the ones that you will probably be seeing on TV, like you're not going to see the Bill Nye stuff Mm -hmm. on TV or in your Instagram feed. Yeah, it's just like that's just kind of their probably as pre-roll and things like that for Mm -hmm. for YouTube. Most of the ads are going to be these like more stylish ones with I don't know people falling into pools of bubbles Instagram looking stuff, but but those are those are solid too. Um, and the uh, but I, I think this is one where he actually had quite a bit to riff on. Like each of these videos, he had a oh, he could go deep on the weird science of of what nitrogen does. In the end, it's just coffee with bubbles in it. But um, so basically, they they put it into a keg, uh, they nitrogenate it with nitrogen bubbles and then it comes out of like a beer looking tap. Um and so I think it's time for us to try it. So we're going to see so. what what we think of this. This stuff is to be clear, while you would think that it's probably an ad, this is absolutely not sponsored by any of these companies. We just really like an excuse to for the company to pick us up uh really expensive coffee drinks. These are like five bucks a piece. Um they're not huge. So it's it's not it's not a cheap, you know, drink. I drink black coffee at like two bucks. So This is this is a splurge for me.
1: Before we do this, I do want to note that Griner right now has on a coffee themed shirt. Hell
0: yeah. (laughs) Especially
1: worn for today.
0: (laughs) With Patrick Coffee sitting next to me and (laughs) (laughs) literally four cups of coffee. This is
1: all planned. (laughs) Go big or go home.
0: (laughs) So, um, okay, so what we're going to do, uh, through the magic of radio, we make trim this a little bit, but, like, uh, we're going to pour our, uh, ourselves some some taste, and we'll let you know what we're, – we're trying one from, uh, from Gregory's, a chain. I don't know if they're outside of New York, um, pretty big around New York, and Starbucks, and we'll just tell you which one we're trying here. You got to do that in front of the microphone, Kelsey. Okay,
2: try. I'll
0: do that. <laughs> 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 All right, so – Let's um, what are we what are we drinking? Kelsey, which one are you? Which
2: I one? have the Starbucks one in my in my hand right now. I'm gonna try it. Okay. Oh, it's really refreshing. is it good? I really like it. Okay. Yeah,
0: okay, I'm gonna try the Starbucks. Yeah, mine tastes like kind of flat. These are probably like 15 minutes, 20 minutes old at this point. I don't taste like the bubbles. and it's worth noting the Gregory one is like super foamy, more like mm-hmm. a beer. Uh, and they' these are basically the same age. like we got them both around the same time. Uh, but the Gregory's one is like super foamy and the Starbucks one just – but yeah, tastes like good cold brew.
1: I was definitely prepared for it to be gross um, but <laughs> <laughs> not bad. I just drank the Starbucks one.
3: All right. It's club soda coffee. Club soda coffee.
0: All right. Is that good? <laughs> uh,
3: <laughs> <laughs> mixed mixed review.
0: All right. All right. I'm, I'm going to try Gregory's here. That's so much better.
3: I feel the opposite. Really? Yeah.
0: Okay.
1: But also don't put too much stock in what I say because yesterday I tweeted that I will drink coffee that tastes like kitty litter as long as it's
0: caffeinated. Mm, I don't know. Kelsey?
2: I think that it's it's not as sweet as the Starbucks one. Mm-hmm. It has like a kind of deeper flavor. Is it supposed to be like carbonated? Like I don't really
0: uh, – It's nitrogenated. Okay.
2: Kelsey. So so I don't know if like <laughs> – is that uh. is supposed to – because it doesn't taste – like I don't really taste any bubbles. Mm. It just sort of feels like a light.
0: I bet if we like room. guzzled it sitting in the, in the coffee shop, we'd probably get more of that. I, well,
2: but I'm also wondering like then how fast do you have to drink it?
0: Mm. Hmm. I mean it's summer. You got to drink it fast.
3: The Starbucks definitely has that signature we burned the hell out of these beans mm-hmm. flavor. Yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah, and you go back to them. You go back and forth, you can really tell the difference. So yeah, I'd say um, – To me, I guess the moral is if you've tried it and you you didn't absolutely hate it, you may want to try some different places and see because this is a pretty distinct flavor difference uh, between those two. Yeah, I think it really is. I kind of assumed it would be pretty much the same, which is naive, I guess, because to Patrick's point, it all comes down to probably what they do with them beans. All right. So uh, are you guys going to be dropping five bucks to buy nitro cold brew now? No. Probably not.
2: Yeah, probably no.
0: not, Not a big room full of converts here. It's
2: just a lot of money.
1: A lot of money for a cup of coffee. (laughs) Well, I'm willing to drive five bucks on like a latte or some, you know, shout out to the macchiato. But this is just not where I see my five dollars going. Like it's good. And I'll drink it at somebody else's expense. But not mine.
3: If it's Irish coffee, then perhaps it would be (laughs) (laughs) five
0: (laughs) dollars. Yeah, you know, I worked in – to be maybe fully transparent, I worked in uh, coffee shops for years um, before – Uh, you know this part of my career and you do always wonder is this a trend is this going to be like a just a a fad and this one is so hardware driven like they really have to have a nitrogenated keg and tap and it's very seasonal Um, I'll be curious to see how much this continues to blow up but we want to hear what you think of Nitro Cold Brew. If you've tried it, if you have a preference, if we are just missing something altogether, too, uh, let us know. You can drop us a note at podcast at adweek.com. That's podcast at adweek.com. And big thanks, huge thanks to our producer, Chris Aarons, who trucked around Midtown getting us uh, Nitro Cold Brew coffee <laughs> from multiple locations, uh, which is totally not his day job. Uh, and uh, we really appreciate it, Chris. Thanks for doing that. All right. We're going to move on to the news portion of this, <laughs> the, your your favorite coffee-tasting podcast. <laughs> all right, so we're back. Let's do actual news now. Um, it has been a pretty fascinating week in the sense that several things kind of came to a head, uh, and it was Patrick's reporting that really brought, um, you know, uh, almost all of this to light. Uh, Patrick, you can help me do a quick recap here. Uh, we've got two major agencies that we're going to be talking about primarily. Uh, one is Ogilvy one of the largest networks uh, advertising networks on earth uh, and definitely one of the best known uh, and the the short version which I'll let you elaborate on is that uh, they had been doing some work with uh, customs and border protection uh, and not nesse- not like PR work necessarily they I think we' primarily doing recruitment uh, type advertising but as this, you know, with the detention facilities and family separation, more employees seem to be kind of growing discontent with the idea of having this relationship. So tell us how this kind of boiled over. How did it, how did it get into the public sphere?
3: Uh, so the news cycle really started – I mean this obviously has been going on for a while. But the news cycle started uh, last month when a publication called Sludge, which sort of defines itself as a uh, government watchdog – published a story that listed the top contractors for CBP, which is Customs and Border Protection. And Ogilvy was among them. Uh, it wasn't really – they didn't really focus on it, but they, they listed them. Uh, but the relationship between Ogilvy and CBP had not been previously reported, and uh, quite a few Ogilvy employees were unaware of it. It was handled by the D.C. office, which is generally called Ogilvy Public Relations, which led to some confusion about the exact nature of the work that Ogilvy was doing for this organization. Yeah, because it
0: sounds like they're doing PR for border protection. It
3: it really came to a head uh, after uh, last month some Democratic representatives toured a particular CBP facility uh, near the border that was also the subject of a New York Times story, and they had some uh, unflattering things to say about it. And there were allegations of things like overcrowding, um, people, detainees not getting um, satisfactory meals. Uh, there was one incident where a representative from California said that a Border Patrol officer told a woman who said she was thirsty and her, her sink was not working that she should drink from the toilet. And so the day after these or – the, or two days after these stories were, went big – the Arizona office of CBP, which is separate from the uh, actual facility that was the subject of the time, story, tweeted out a video in which an officer tore it around and essentially said, none of that is true. You know, look at our facilities. They're clean. Uh, we have – we're well-stocked, et cetera. And uh, a, an immigration advocacy legal group that generally represents uh, migrants and files lawsuits and things like that uh, quoted the tweet and implied that Ogilvy had either produced the video or assisted in producing and distributing the video and referred to it as, quote, state propaganda. So then there was a bunch of people trying to figure out what exactly Ogilvy was doing and a lot of people hating on them online. Uh, There was a little bit of confusion also um, as to just the distinction between the different divisions of the Department of Homeland Security, uh, CBP and ICE, and uh, there's still a little bit of that. I think that you know, the, the, the big difference really is that customs deals with the flow of people, products, et cetera, across the border, whereas ICE is the, the uh, enforcement of laws regarding people who are already in the country. Yeah that's the, the key difference. So
0: Well, but it was, it was funny seeing like Ogilvy's defense was we did not make that video. Well, I mean, yes, we're doing other stuff, but we didn't make that video. <laughs> well,
3: they didn't, they didn't really defend themselves at all. They kind of went silent. Um, and then there was a story in a competing publication saying they didn't make the video, quoting a you know, source familiar with the matter um, and Ogilvy declining to comment. And um, our story was the first one to kind of get into it a little bit more. It was primarily focused on an email exchange between Ogilvy's uh, CEO and chairman, John Seifert, and uh, an employee who was among a group that raised concerns about this account. One of the majority of Ogilvy employees who was unaware that they were working for this organization and uh, just voiced their disapproval and several of them reached out to him and he responded to at least one. I know that he also held a meeting. Um, the audio of that meeting was later leaked to BuzzFeed. A a pretty
0: big staff meeting, right?
3: Yeah, it was about 40 to 45 people. um, And that was – so then the story got bigger. But essentially what he – he laid out his defense, which was he said this is a very important uh, client for us. He said that the work we do is not public relations. It's creative. We make recruitment ads and our goal is to help this organization attract – better qualified and more diverse people um,
0: yeah and like the the closest I can really get to being a devil's advocate here is that you know setting aside everything else like that goal there's something to that right like it, it would be it would be great to have a more diverse and more representative uh, border patrol like knowing that people from different backgrounds are there so that it doesn't get so monstrous but that said this town hall like the you know style thing, bit of a train wreck you know i've only i've only seen the transcript but i mean you've got employees saying like who won't we work with right it's like right you know if right. we're, we're willing to work with oil companies destroying the environment tobacco companies destroying people's health and you know people running detention facilities for children it's like a, what, what what's left what's I, not on the list
2: i also think it's sort of a, a distinction that obviously is important but it like without a distinction that doesn't at the end of the day it's sort of splitting hairs for the people who are yeah. you know yeah. internally but also externally it's like well you're still working with them like it doesn't really you know when the executives are saying well I'm going to do we're only doing this specific type of work it's like right. well I'll, at right. the end of the day you're still doing work for this organization that is you know and there are all these kind of all this, this stuff that this organization is doing, like, maybe you're not doing that directly, but you're still working with them. And I think that was kind of that was what I, you know, I took away from from the transcript and and from kind of the the internal back and forth and deciding whether to keep the contract, which they ultimately did.
3: Yeah, that was that was really the takeaway was that Seifert was saying, we think that what's happening on the border is abhorrent, I think, was the word that he used. And we don't. You know, we're not saying that we approve of that in any way, but we still this is our work for our client, et cetera. And it, it's actually kind of interesting to watch the the only ad that I'm aware of that they did make uh, for CBP, because the actors cast in the ad who are supposed to be border patrol agents are uh, Hispanic, or the the primary actors. So it's kind of um, to his point; they're sort of countering this perception. Uh, that is widely reinforced by these stories that you guys probably saw about Border Patrol agents being part of uh, racist Facebook groups uh, that came out around the same time. And I'm fairly sure Ogilvy leadership saw all that stuff too. But the, the back story is that this organization is having – is really struggling to recruit people um, and that they, they had earlier hired both Ogilvy and Accenture – and there was a bit of controversy because they couldn't prove that Accenture had succeeded in recruiting people despite paying them multi-millions of dollars. And the ultimate conclusion was that they had worked on the account for maybe a year and a half and that they had attracted just over 50 new recruits. So that just shows you uh, how you know problematic this, this work could potentially be. But as as Seifert said in the initial email that we reported on, he was saying, you know, this is one of our, one of several extremely valuable government contracts that we have, and we just, you know, we can't comment on it publicly because it would look bad for us, and it would sort of make those other, uh, those other clients lose confidence in us as well.
0: So, so you know, the long story short with that one is they decide to stay with the client, right? They so did. they, despite internal pressures, despite you know negative fallout, public in terms of publicity, they chose to stay with it. Uh, but then we have Edelman. Uh, so Edelman, the largest PR company on earth, uh, independent, which is maybe an important distinction. Um, they uh, got. Well, you could tell us the details of how this one came to life, uh, but they had been uh, working with a contractor that ran ICE uh, ICE detention facilities, prisons, basically. Um, and reminds the distinction: where they don't run like the ones that I think we think of in terms of news reports. But
3: they don't want run the ones uh, on the along the border generally, which are CBP. Yeah. Uh, but they run uh, the the company, which is called Geo Group, runs about 140. 140- various facilities around the US, uh, some of which are specifically for uh, detainees, that migrants and for like rehabilitation and, and things like that. So they uh, hold them until they're – while they're being processed through the legal system and, and in many cases deported.
0: Yeah, one of the largest is actually – and I, I- – should have confirmed whether they run this one, but in, is right outside of where I live in Alabama. Uh, is one of the largest detention facilities for um, you know for these detained migrants uh, in America is uh, there, and so you see actually there's quite a bit of increasing protest about it. has been around for a long time, but it's it's right. kind of more in the spotlight now. Even though there's not kids there, it's all men, but it's uh, you know so it, so it is. This is a pretty large industry. It I, is. I think many of us have heard about private prisons and and know about their, their kind of divisive role in, in politics. Uh, but – so this came to light for Edelman. They had – they were not doing work yet, right? They had gotten a contract.
3: Right. They had signed the contract. Uh, they hadn't really – officially begun producing uh, any work. Uh, they, they had the contract for less than two weeks, really. So officially they won the business, as I understand it, in May. Um, it was a no-compete pitch, which meant that they were the only firm that was pitching. And it was based on a. They had a pre-existing relationship with the organization because the president of their Washington D.C. office head also worked on the account with her previous employer. It was another PR firm.
0: So, so did basically did employees just find out after the contract was won?
3: Yes. It, and, well, this this is where the Edelman and Ogilvy stories differ in a little uh, slightly in that uh, the Edelman leadership sends out regular emails saying about uh, new business wins. And it was included on the list. And as soon as uh, employees in the D.C. office learned about it, that a undisclosed number of them made their objections clear to leadership uh, that they did not you know, want to be working on this account. And I think that there were – based on my conversation with several people, there were a series of meetings about it um, that led to a sort of all hands uh, during the second week and then leadership – told everyone, okay, we're, you know, we're not going to move forward with this. We're going to back out of the contracts. And they ultimately had it for, as I said, for for approximately two weeks.
0: So they've gotten, Edelman has, because they, unlike Ogilvy, they canceled the contract. They've gotten, you know, some praise from people who said they're doing the right thing. Um, you know, obviously, they took on the contract to begin with. So it's said yes. they are kind of admitting. They also
2: sent out an email that was like, hey, I just wanted to let you know, like, this great Business win, and everyone was like, "What?"
3: Well, <laughs> like, there's also what are you talking yeah, about. <laughs> yeah, we we should also mention, and, and Edelman has not confirmed or denied this, but uh, according to multiple employees discussing the contract online, they also formerly represented the second largest uh, private prison company in the U.S., which is called CoreCivic. They do essentially the same kind of work that the Geo Group does, and they represented them until last month when their contract ended. So essentially, they worked with the second largest company and then when their contract ended, they started working with the largest company. And then when they – again, according to the sources that spoke to me, when the organization started to realize that there was both a, this significant uh, you know, portion of their workforce that that uh, didn't want to have anything to do with this and also that it could potentially leak to the press as it did and uh, – Make Edelman look bad. They decided that ultimately it wasn't worth the risk.
0: Yeah, I mean they've got internal pressure, but then they're going. They know they're going to have, and they're a PR firm. They know the the damage that negative press can have. Um, but let's kind of get to this distinction. So you've got two high profile examples of agencies going in two very different directions. Either sticking with their problematic, or you know, I don't know what term to use for it, but you know, very polarizing clients. But Where do you think this left the industry, Patrick? On like the next time this comes up, it does feel like employees are going to be more quick to to pull the trigger on this kind of internal protest now that they've seen it can work.
3: I mean, I would think so. I would think that that employees are going to be a little more open with uh, expressing their opinions. I mean, it kind of depends on what happens with Edelman because I'm sure that they are investigating right now and trying to determine exactly who leaked this to the press. but I think that it's – and it, this is not the first time actually. Late last year, uh, there was a sort of parallel with um, Deloitte and McKinsey, both of which also work with CBP and, and ICE. And uh, at McKinsey decided to drop ICE as a client and then Deloitte employees sort of circulated a petition to their CEO saying, we also want to do the same. And ultimately, they decided not to. Um, so it's kind of a – it's a values judgment but it's also a how much is this account worth to us judgment so it's kind of like it's it's a business decision really and i think there's an interesting debate going on between whether edelman quote did the right thing or whether they just kind of made a calculation as to what is this ultimately going to do to our bottom line and do we do we really is it is it better just to cut them loose
0: well and this highlights I mean obviously every agency, not every agency, most every agency is working with companies that have pretty substantial negative impacts, right? Uh, Whether that's social, whether that's labor practices, whether that's uh, environmental, absolutely. And oil companies are the ones that you think about the most because every agency, major network wants to have one of those oil companies because they spend a gazillion dollars on advertising and if you talk to those agency people. They never say like, "Yeah, I'm really glad to help sell gas and sell oil and And you know what they say is, you know we're really their their leader in renewable energy initiatives, you know, and but that can be true though it, it, yeah. Uh, but it, that's what they always talk about. It's like yeah. when ninety five percent of where you're making your money is moving and selling and digging up gas. Um, and I mean, I'm practical enough about this to realize. Like, but I also, you know, live in Alabama where we had a giant oil spill off the coast that, you know, from BP that devastated our entire ecology. And you know, it was interesting seeing the PR machine kind of move into place, uh, and they shelled out so much money, just pumping money into Alabama to try to be like, you know, just just here, we're not saying that this money is to make you stop complaining about us and to hate us forever. Uh, but if that happens to help, you know, it's just seeing w- when the absolute worst happens, uh, how they move on that kind of extra embittered me, I guess, a little bit about it. Um, but anyway, I don't know, Kelsey, wh- where do you think, like, you deal? You could deal with a lot of tech companies who, of course, run into their own ethical concerns. Like, how do you think? This stuff's being parsed, and and the role that employees play in this.
2: Something I'm reminded of with these stories is um, in 2018, there were a series of protests from big, big tech companies like Google. There was a there was a walkout, and I mean it's and it's kind of run the gamut from companies internal handling of sexual harassment to companies uh, partnerships with with various organizations that are objectionable to the employees, and I and I wonder. Um, kind of how the and obviously there's been a lot of press about those those sorts of things, kind of this this growing um willingness among employees of certain well established organizations to to say, actually, you know we we think that this is objectionable, and we're gonna we're gonna speak out. We're gonna walk out of the office or I'm gonna resign very publicly and you know, write a letter and and publish it everywhere. <laughs> um, and i I wonder kind of how. How that seeing that happen in the public eye from you know Google or, or I believe Amazon I think they had something similar, and then how that affects kind of these these um, adjacent industries. I mean, Edelman, Ogilvy are not you know are, are not tech companies per se, but but you know if you're an employee and you're kind of thinking like you're you're frustrated by by what's happening, you're seeing what you're reading about what's happening at the border, and then you know you you remember that that. Google successfully, you know, walked out, and they got policies changed. Like, I wonder how that kind of impacts these other organizations. You know, when when people who are are going, wait, wait a second, like we can actually, you know, speak out. I can, I can, you know, make a public statement. I just think that's a really interesting dynamic that's happening in the in these workforces. Um, it's just, it's, it's, it's. I imagine it's only going to continue.
0: Well, the, the other thing this highlighted to me is that. Especially independent agencies, I'm sure this is true of any independent company too, is that, you know, they don't make as much money a lot of the time as your big corporate owned agencies. Um, But they always tell me, we have more independence, you know, of course. I mean, they're independent. But they'd say like, we're not beholden to what shareholders demand. We can make our own decisions. Um, And, you know, this is a situation where if if your pressure is shareholders and meeting financial targets and shareholders typically – don't care about the kind of stuff we're talking about they just want to make that money cuz they're anonymized right? like they're they're completely they are just a mass of people who get checks based on how much money uh, your company makes
3: yeah they don't have to deal with the press
0: <laughs> yeah and so like and they it kind of gives executives a bit of a fallback of just like mm, you know like it's what it's what shareholders want whereas if you're independent you can, you can make that choice without anyone behind you screaming like, oh, but you could have made an extra $0.50 cents, you know, on, your, on your dividend uh, if you had done that. Why didn't you do it? You don't have to take those angry shareholder calls even though you may have to take the angry employee calls. Um, Kamiko, we dedicated our Twitter chat uh, that we do each Wednesday. We dedicated the last one to this topic of who are you willing to work with? Who are you willing to work for? when, And one of the questions we asked – was have you taken a stand? Have you had to take a stand in the office uh, or at work or what? And and I'm curious, any of us at this table may have been in this situation, but what kind of stuff did people say in terms of when they've run into this themselves?
1: Um, Not a lot of people actually, and then not to mention um, publicly on the internet, are willing to admit (laughs) Mm -hmm. they had to stand up and say something to a company. But um, one of the main things that we did see was um, people – Wanted employees to be more influential when it came to company decisions Um, instead of, you know, the reliance on the almighty dollar to spend more time considering what the people who work for you, Um, you know, they said, well, when you're getting ready to work with a company, Um, check out the mission statement. But there was a little bit of back and forth in the comment section, which I really appreciated. That was just like, well, you can't always rely on a mission statement to tell you what this company's day-to-day looks like or what they're actually invested in, just like you were saying. You know, they'll prop, it's an oil company, but they'll prop up the, oh, well, we do renewable sources and things like that. So um, a lot of the focus was more so around like, how do we catch them beforehand? What do we do to make sure that we want to work with them? And this is not a company that's, um, you know, going to, go against our core values. So,
3: One, one thing that I think is, is key to point out is that, you know, unlike a Google or an Amazon, agencies have a model that is client first always. So when you sign a contract with a client, your job is to promote this client, to make this client look good. That's, that's it. You always refer to the client even in the case of Edelman when the client is essentially bad-mouthing you after the fact as, mm-hmm. as their, their now former client did yesterday. And this also applies to, to government entities. You know. And, and you can say, OK, this is nonpartisan. Like take, for example, McCann has represented the US Army for a dozen years through George W. Bush, Barack Obama, Donald Trump. Very different politics. But the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq were still going on. They still had to promote the army. They still had to recruit people, you know. Um, but when you take on this assignment, knowing that the, the political environment is what it is, you as an organization have to understand that this – there is going to be scrutiny. Mm-hmm. That it's going to go public, especially if it's a federal, a federal organization and that this attention is going to come. So One? that's why Ogilvy look. I was just kind of like, my response to Ogilvy is kind of like they they sort of are like, why us? And I'm like, of course you. You chose to take this on, and yet you seemed utterly unprepared to respond. Yeah,
0: I mean that's something I I do wonder if at least companies are now thinking about that is like we should proactively or at least be prepared to. Reactively defend the decision we made because what struck me is how not tremendously prepared uh, they were. Um
3: but at the same time, you can't do that because, as as Ogilvy said, in these internal discussions that were never in, intended to be made public, you you just can't. As part of your contract, mm. you signed this, this NDA. Like, you can't speak publicly about your – unless the client allows you to do that, and they almost never do. Mm. So it's kind of – you You really, like, just by accepting this money and this assignment, you kind of paint yourself into a corner.
1: Yeah. yeah one of the um, recurring things that we did see in our AdWeek chat is a lot of times um, for people who had been vocal about, you know, we're not comfortable working with this company or this brand or, you know, this industry. It was always painted with this broad paintbrush. It's marketing, you know. Right. We're, we're, here, we're here
3: to do marketing. That's it. I know some agencies do have policies where they allow people to basically opt out of working on certain accounts. Mm-hmm. I don't know exactly how that works at different shops, but uh, that's one way that some people deal with it. Yeah. Um, and there's t- – to the point you were making earlier, I, I'm trying to remember the exact line that Seifert said in the, from the BuzzFeed transcript. I believe he said that like no client walks a straight line and he was talking about how our biggest client globally is Coca-Cola and they contribute to obesity and i remember when in the in the adweek chat we were talking about brands that people were talking about brands that they were proud to work with or mm-hmm. that they would want to work with and a bunch of people mentioned nike it was kind of like wow I'm so proud of all the things that nike has been doing and the you know, the inspirational messages they send and stuff and kind of like, OK, well, you know, Nike is currently facing class action lawsuits for gender discrimination. You know, Nike got a lot of press attention for it's uh, what people deemed were, were unsatisfactory maternity leave policies for its for its female athletes, you mm-hmm. know, and it's like and then they have these ads that are focused on female empowerment and things like that. So it's kind of like there there truly is no perfect Account,
0: yeah. Well, maybe I have a question that maybe is naive, um, but I think a lot of marketing people like to think this way: is that it's sometimes better to work in the system than from the outside. Mm-hmm. That protest gets you a certain distance, but if you're actually in the conversations, and when you're in an agency environment, especially in leadership, you end up in the room with some really important people. And this is what surprised me when I worked at ad agency: is that I would end up in meetings with these very high level executives at. A major financial institution or whatever and not a pitch, not a creative review, but it's like they want to be brought up to speed on a certain topic and suddenly you're at the table talking to these people and you can be the advocate for issues that these people in ivory towers, you know, if you live in a mansion and you just come in and work on the top floor – you may feel like oh that is the buzzing of flies like that doesn't that doesn't really and then sometimes I felt like I could be an advocate for this is a much bigger issue than you know and I would present data and show it but on the other hand, you know there's a line where you stop being an internal advocate for things and you become a collaborator right like with uh, with, with things that are patently upsetting We asked about this in the chat did you get much feedback from people about whether they believe it really is, better to work through the system or yeah
2: you
1: kind of had like a half and half a lot of people so you know some people saw it as you know that's one of the, the best thing that you can do is try to be an advocate of change yourself and do it from inside out um, but there were others who were saying you know sometimes that doesn't work unless there's an outside pressure you can want to change things as much as you want but it may not work just from you know your team opting out or working differently or things like that it may take a tweet storm or a shit storm to kind of come and add that additional pressure um, like there was in this case
0: yeah, you have to have both right like you have to have the voices out there and then someone inside being like they're right you know and 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 we can make this change and i i do think that's how you know okay you look at a company like uber right like where they have these really high profile bad things that Mm -hmm. happen and then i had a friend go work at uber uh, you know as this stuff's on the tail end and i was like you know my first reaction was kind of like bold choice you know um just cuz this is a person who probably could work anywhere um and they said you know i well i mean i think i can help like i think i can be part of making it better um and and i be, i believe them you know what I mean? Like it's. I, I think they could have gone to a lot of different places that that, that don't have a high profile, you know, history of problems. Uh, but they said they felt confident that when they went and interviewed that, yeah, they're they're committed. I have no idea. Like I'm not deep in Uber, but it is one of those things where, if like a if like a major company were famous for not having a diverse workforce and you were a person of color, you know, you, it's easy to say like I don't want to work there. I'm going to be uncomfortable. But on the other hand, you could say, well. I mean, it's never going to change if if people like me don't start right. working there. Mm-hmm.
2: Um, At the same time though, like for all the people who are like I'm going to try to change this from the inside out, there might be people who are just like I'm not going to apply there. I'm not going to go. So I think that there is a risk of, you know, when you when you get involved in in controversial clients. I put that in like scare quotes because it that's just like the most that's just a very generous <laughs> I think description for a lot of this, but um you know, you you risk people going. I'm out. Like I'm. This is so objectionable. I'm gonna. You know. I'm gonna voice my concerns. I'm gonna look elsewhere. Are there are people gonna not. Uh, you know. Not come. And I think that that's kind of the. That's another risk. You know, of of the long term health of a of a company. If you're mm-hmm. gonna, if you're, you know, gonna gonna be working with with clients that are that are going to. You know, you you risk the uh, the PR problems, um, but then you also risk the you know losing losing people at the organization who might otherwise have have stayed and made it better. Yeah,
0: there's a quote that has come up several times in this debate, and it's one that I, I always tried to keep in mind when I was at an agency: is it's it's only a principle when it costs you money. <laughs> um, and and it's easy to say like we would never do that until someone dangles a bunch of money in front of you. And this was a case where we saw. Uh, Companies go a few different directions. Um, But I do think we're getting to that point. And I think this is going – I think we're just at the front end. That's why we want to dedicate this podcast to it is like we're really just at the front end of this becoming an issue. I think it's – employees are going to be feeling more empowered. But we're seeing this right now with Brexit, right? So $100 million ad campaign under Boris Johnson Mm -hmm. to sell Brexit uh, and some agency had to take it. And Mm -hmm. I I believe it was Engine that uh, that ended up taking it. But like imagine – being in that environment right now, and what you looking around the room as, as an agency, and being like, are, "Is it going to be us?" Because <laughs> <laughs> that's that's a lot of money, but also we may just be spit on in the streets, you know. Um, so I think I think we're just. Starting the, this, we're going to be hearing about this more and more now that it started bubbling up. Wh- whistleblowers are going to be empowered more, and yep. uh, you see apps like Fishbowl was a big part of this, right?
3: It was both both the Edelman and the Ogilvy stories.
0: Yeah, so that's an anonymous uh, agency centric kind of app. I think they deal with several uh, industries, uh, but it's a little creepy because it is anonymous, and I never like necessarily tr- trust those. It's but.
3: mostly you, you can use your name. Most almost everyone does not yeah. for good reason.
0: Yeah, but it played a big role in helping surface this. Uh, so we shall see. Well, thank you so much, Patrick. Uh, I definitely strongly encourage everyone to keep an eye on Patrick's coverage of, of Ogilvy, of Edelman, of many other stories coming down the pike. Uh, but thank you so much for all your work on the story.
3: Thanks, David.
0: Uh, Kelsey, thanks so much for making time for us.
2: Yeah, thank you so much for, for having me.
0: For joining our our first coffee tasting that we've ever done
2: I hope it's not the last I know
0: it's like now I gotta think uh, and if you have any thoughts as a listener of what we should be trying uh, let us know we, we are always happy to gorge on this stuff Kamiko, thanks so much for making time and for bringing your wonderful dog
1: Not a problem. she's napping now but not a problem <laughs>
0: <laughs> alright well we will be back uh, next week Uh, Our theme music is by Home. Uh, This week's episode was produced by Chris Ahrens, who, again, thank you for picking up the coffee, Chris.
2: Thanks, Chris. Uh,
0: With production assistance by Josh Rios and editing by Lane McGibney. Uh, And you can reach us anytime at podcastadweek.com. Don't forget to uh, subscribe and leave us a review. Those reviews mean a lot to us, and they help new listeners discover the show. For Adweek, I'm David Greiner, and we'll be back soon.